Just a bit of an update, they're actually very happily married, but not to each other. And, um, wow, uh, if he had any idea, any idea, that that would have ended up like that, if he was certain that that would have been the outcome, he never would have done that. And, and she's trying to tell him, she's trying to say, no, no, don't do it. And um, in the end, she just sorted it out, didn't she? And uh, he's a bit like the coyote, he gets up and life goes on. But certainty is something that's important, because if we can have certainty about something, certainty about the outcome of something, then it will change the way we act. It should. Back in 1960, uh, the year before I was born, my father, uh, who was a businessman, he was a pharmacist, he had a couple of pharmacies and probably did quite well. We weren't really rich or anything like that, but you know, we were probably pretty comfortable. And um, he was approached by a friend of his who said, I know a guy who's about to list on the stock exchange and you really should take $1,000, which was, I think, about 500 pounds in those days, and you should invest with this guy because this guy is going to do really well. And my father um, agonised about it. Um, 500 pounds was a lot of money in those days, um, and he really agonised about it. And because he had a young family and all these other things, he decided not to do it. And the company was actually Westfield Holdings and with Frank Lowy. And $1,000 in 1960, when it was listed, in 2011 would have been worth $242 million. In fact, now, the share price has nearly doubled. It would be worth about half a billion dollars. And had my father decided to do that, I would probably be here today wearing $900 socks. You know? <laughs> have a $50,000 watch and be carried by my butler out to my Ferrari and we'd drive home. Um, but my dad wasn't certain. And because he wasn't certain and because he had a family to take care of and all of that, he probably made a good decision, believe it or not, because he didn't know for sure what the outcome would be. He wasn't certain. If he had been certain that uh, $1,000 is worth like half a billion now. He would have done it. He would have put 10000 in, okay? And so would have you. Certainty about the future changes what we do in the present. And for that very reason, Luke, who has written this gospel, which is good news about Jesus, he explains why he was moved to write this account about Jesus. It's two chapters, actually. It's the Gospel of Luke, part one, and the Acts of the Apostles, part two. He tells us why he was moved to write that. And the reason is a very simple one. Simple, but profound. And this is the reason. In verse four, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. He understood that if people were certain about the truth about Jesus, who he was, why he came, what he taught, what his death meant, 
about his rising from the dead and returning to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit. He knew that if people were certain about these things, not just maybe aware of them and maybe not just, yeah, yeah, that's okay, but absolutely certain of the truths of those things, then they would live phenomenally different lives and make different choices. Because if Jesus is truly God, which the Bible tells us, and he died on the cross for our sins, and he has risen from the dead and defeated death, and by so doing promised us a place in heaven which he can deliver, then if you believe that, it changes the course of everything, doesn't it? Because in comparison, being worth half a million dollars is nothing compared to an eternity of living with God and ruling the universe with him. And so Luke's gospel, as with all of the other scriptures, but Luke's gospel particularly is there so that we may know the certainty of the things we have been taught. Look at what Luke says. He explains the process. This is what he said in uh, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. You know, from the time of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, a whole lot of people were talking about it. It was an extraordinary thing. It happened in this little backwater of a place called Jerusalem. And within time, it had spread basically all throughout the world, and it's still spreading now. But from the earliest of days, people who saw Jesus, people who saw him rise from the dead, they took it upon themselves to, and moved by the Holy Spirit to uh, draw up accounts. There were lots of people who wrote things about this. And, and the point is, and what he highlights here, is a particular word. And the word is fulfillment. He wants us to be certain of the things that have been fulfilled in our midst. And you know why fulfillment is a, a really important word? You, you, you understand it. If you call somebody up and you give that person an order for something and they actually end up sending the order to your house, that order has been fulfilled. The promise or the expectation or the request goes out and when it's been fulfilled, the process has been finished. Now, this concept of fulfillment is extraordinarily important because it tells us about the character of God. It tells us about what has been done, but it makes the simple point that a God who is capable of doing all of these things is capable of doing things both today and in the future. This is the sort of God that we have, a God who is able to fulfill the promises he makes to us so that we can have certainty. And so we don't live in the world thinking, well, what if? What if? The same God who raised Jesus from the dead is alive and well and capable of fulfilling every promise he's made to us. And so one of the big things in the Bible is for us to understand that we have a God who fulfills his promises. Now, if we just look on to these next verses in Luke, this is part of Luke's gospel that will be outlined as, you know, we look at it over time. 
in Luke 24, 44 to 47, we have Jesus who was risen from the dead and he's now talking to his disciples. People who were broken hearted and thought, well, maybe God doesn't fulfill his promises when they saw Jesus on the cross dying. And they were broken hearted and they felt, what's going on? But all of a sudden he rose from the dead and he appears to them and this is what he said. This is what I told you while I was still with you. I told you I could do it. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah, which is one of the names he has for himself, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem and even getting down to Launceston. I mean, the fact that we're here is a fulfillment of these very words, aren't they? This thing didn't go away. The people who heard Jesus, who followed Jesus, who started talking about Jesus, and who were beaten up and killed and told to shut up, you can't say this anymore. It got fulfilled. You can't shut the thing down because God is behind it. And when God is behind something, irrespective of what we see or what we might conclude, his purposes will always come to fruition because he's a God who fulfills his promises. And the incredible thing about reading through Luke is you see all of those promises fulfilled. Now, we had a few technical issues. It's been an interesting technical weekend. Um, the the U version that we normally have up here didn't work out 100% when I get home, I'm going to try and fix it. Um, Given the fact that it's me, the chances are slim, but have a look anyway. But what should be on there is a link to an article about all of the things the Old Testament said would happen that are actually fulfilled in Jesus. There are more than 300 promises that God made that were fulfilled in Jesus from where he would be born, to the fact that it would be a virgin virgin birth, to the very things about dying on a cross, all of it. It's amazing. And, And one of the reasons what's so exciting to read the Old Testament, say Isaiah, for instance, written six to 800 years before the time of Jesus, promising all of these things. Isaiah 53, read them. It's the Christmas story. God said, this is how it's going to happen. And guess what? It happened that way. And so as we're sitting here today, what we need to ponder upon is what's my life like? What am I doing with my time? Does my life reflect the fact that I belong to a God who was all-powerful, who has said to me, these are the things you need to do. I've given you my spirit. Go and do them. We just had a couple up here. Tim and um, Kate, look at their lives. They were just living here like everybody else. The Lord moved them. They went up to Sydney. All of these things happened. Some of them were very normal. But one of the really cool things about working for Jesus, you sow seeds, you don't know where they're going to end up. It's possible one of those really ratty teenagers will end up being one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever seen. And people have told me, that when you actually look at uh, our friend up there, Clifton, if Clifton can be up there running a mission, anybody can do anything. 
because he was a real rat bag as a teenager. But the Lord got hold of him, didn't he? Spoke to him, put a dream on his heart, and now the lives of hundreds and hundreds of children are being changed for eternity because of what the Lord has moved him to do. Now, I can promise you, Clifton wouldn't have done that. And our other friends, uh, Tim and Kate, they wouldn't have gone to Sydney if they didn't believe and know and be certain about a God who makes promises and honour them. Do you know, as Christians, if we do what God asks us to do, we cannot lose. It is an unlosable proposition. Things may not always go the way we want, but I think it was Kate had actually said. It's, it's not the success or the way we think about success that's really success. Success is truly measured by our willingness to go and do what God has asked us to do. And he'll cover the rest. And it takes the pressure off. And it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And so the question is, how certain are we? Now, what Luke wants us to understand is that when he wrote this gospel, he went to exhausting human lengths, let alone spiritual empowerment, to put this thing together. And he wrote a history in a way that history had never really been written before. If you go back and look at the histories of the ancient world, what you'll find is that history was primarily written by the victors. And so whoever was the big king at the time he'd get his history guy to basically write history so that this king always looked good. It's a bit like reading sort of like the biography written under czarist, under um, communist Russia of, say, Stalin. Comrade Stalin, good comrade Stalin. We know he murdered millions of his own people. It wasn't true. Well, the history that Luke has written was put together in an incredibly important way. Look at what he actually says in verse 2. He actually refers to it as being, it's following on from verse 1, he he refers to the things that have been fulfilled among us, and in verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. The Word is Jesus. He went and spoke to people. He went and said, tell me, what did you see? What was it like following Jesus from the earliest of times? How was it when he went up in that mountain and was transfigured? And where were you when he was crucified? Difficult questions to ask because one of the beauties of Luke's gospel and all of the other gospels as well is they're full of real people who sometimes act very poorly. And as I've said before, there's there's only one word to call the disciples and that's buffets. Those guys were idiots. They were self-centered. They were all about me. They were basically trying to do the dirty on each other and put themselves forward. Not like anybody you've ever met, of course. But the reality is they were terrible. Now, you find that in a real history. You don't find that in a history that's been airbrushed. You go to the reality, the main guy gets murdered on a piece of wood. What a story. Who would make that up? Nobody. It's full of truth, and it's a truth that was handed down by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. When we read the Scriptures, 
we have the truth empowered by the Holy Spirit that has used the witnesses of the original people. But not only them. Are we aware of how many people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead? How many was it? Was it 10? Was it 12? Did he crack 20 or 30? Maybe even 40 or 50? I'm going to read from um, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 6. This is Paul speaking. He says, For what I, Paul, received, I passed on to you as of first importance. He tells the truth, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the Twelve, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. A euphemism for having died. 500 plus people at least met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the sort of history that Luke has recorded. He went and spoke to everyone he could. He asked them questions. Paul's letters were written about the same time, I believe, you know, within a a space of Luke's gospel. What did you see? What did you hear? What was he like? Did you see him after he rose from the dead? Absolutely. That's what they've written down. And so when we sit down with Luke's gospels or any of the gospels and we read them, we are looking at Jesus through the eyes of those who spent years with him and those who saw him after he was risen from the dead. And we can be certain as to the truth of these things. And then look what he says in verse 3. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. An orderly account. He put it together. It's got a beginning, a middle and an end. That's what it's meant to have, isn't it? And all of a sudden you read it from the earliest times right through. And then if you follow on to uh, the Acts of the Apostles, you see what happened when Jesus left and the church that we're all part of, Door of Hope is part of, began. It's an incredible historical document. Now you're probably wondering, well, who's Theophilus? Nobody knows. He's a bloke. But what's so interesting about his name is Theophilus means lover of God. So my guess is he's written it to you and me, hasn't he? We're all Theophilus, aren't we? People who love God and just desire to be more certain. What would our lives be like And what would it be like tomorrow morning when you wake up if you're more certain about the truth about Jesus than when you went to bed the night before? I want to show you a picture up there. Can we see it? You're probably wondering what that is. That's a bathroom for those of you who have never used one. Um, Now, that's actually the bathroom of an Indian restaurant, I won't say which one, in Hobart. I don't normally go into bathrooms and take photographs of bathrooms. I thought I would point that out. But on this occasion, I did. Because uh, about in the last month or so, my son was down here, and he and I went down to Hobart for the day, and he loves Indian food. 
We've been trying to organize an Indian bride for him, but I don't think it's going to happen. But um, he, he loves Indian food, so I said, okay, we'll walk around, have a look at Hobart, and then we'll find a, a nice Indian restaurant for lunch. And we found this one because we'd been walking around. He sat down. I thought, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. And I walked in there, and lo and behold, there's a shower in there. It's not very often you go into a restaurant where there's a shower in there, and I'm thinking, that's it. That's it. When you order the hottest curry, they throw in a shower for a little bit extra. And it actually got me thinking. I don't know if we're going to be... Can we see the next slide? Now, this is the menu. It's not actually from that restaurant. But I decide, you know, normally when you go to an Indian restaurant, they make it the food is hot with chilies next to it. I thought, no, let's put shower heads next to it. And so what we have is the Merg Akbari. That's 10.95, two shower heads. It's two shower heads, okay? You've got the Merg Shahi Korma. That's only one shower head. That's pretty mild, okay? But if you get right down to the Merg Chili, and it says, not for the faint-hearted, five showers. <laughs> so basically, you buy it. It's two fifty each a shower. They give you a towel, a bathrobe, and you, know, you have a couple of bites. You go in there, you wash yourself down, and you come back for a second go. That's how it works. I tried to sell this idea to the owner who thought I was actually insane, and I have no idea why. Uh, now, it's just a creative way to rate the hotness of food. Rating things is helpful because it shows us where to go. I don't really like really hot curries. I like mild curries, so I wouldn't have touched the five-shower one. But because of the rating system, it helps me to understand. And I guess the question I would put to each of us today, how do we rate ourselves when it comes to the certainty about the things that have been fulfilled? Are we kind of a one-shower person, two-shower? Or would we call ourselves red-hot, five-shower people when it really comes to certainty about what has been fulfilled? And the reason I ask this question is for a very simple reason. Luke has written his gospel so that we could be more certain. And so if you're not feeling like you're a five-shower person, five shower heads, maybe you're a one, maybe you're not even a one yet, you're just thinking about the whole thing. I want to encourage you that the gospel of Luke has been particularly written for us so that we can put our heads in there, so we can find out about the things that were promised and see how they have been fulfilled. We can read about what God wants us to do with our lives and it's important we are because there's a fair bit of pushback from this world in believing and following Jesus. And for us to push through that and to be faithful and to do the things that God wants us to do, we need to ratchet up the certainty, don't we? And there's only one way to do it. 20 minutes in the chair. It's what we call our 20-minute Bible reading each day. Put your head in the Word of God, but particularly say in Luke's Gospel, each, each Sunday there's going to be a reading for this. Okay? And start to immerse yourself, not doing it because you think, I'm going to be obedient and read God's word and I really hate it and whatever. But more so because we're told that there is a positive outcome from doing this. That by putting your head in there and by praying about it and reading it, you can come to know more about what was promised 
You can see the things that have been fulfilled and you can walk taller each day. Be more sure, be more clear, be more encouraged about God's plan for your life and how he is wanting to fulfill some of those promises through you and me. Isn't it great? God just doesn't leave us to our own devices. If we're sort of swimming around out of our depth, he encourages us to put our heads down, prayerfully read through Luke's gospel and you'll be encouraged and you'll be stronger. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you that you have just not gone back to heaven, Jesus, and left us to our own devices. But you have provided a way so that we could know more about you, who you are, how you fulfilled promises of long ago, how you continued to fulfill promises when, when you were on earth. And now that you are risen, having sent your Holy Spirit, you fulfill promises now. And you will fulfill every promise you have made, both now and in the future. And we have no reason to be uncertain or fearful or anything like this. That we can go about not our business, but your business with the certainty that you have offered to us. We say, thank you, Jesus, for dying, for rising, for sending the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus.